0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton, finance professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Note, the sixth edition of Stocks for the Long Run is out wherever books are sold, so get a copy. I'm a red Registrar of four side Fund Services, and Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views for our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a very interesting show where we go deep into the fixed income markets of what's happening across those markets, what are the best opportunities. But to kick us off, Professor, we've got like a third of the S&P 500 reporting earnings, all sorts of earnings out. We've got a few more economic reports we gearing up for the fed meeting give us your your read
2: okay let me first talk about that fed meeting uh, 25 is in the bag um what i would like to see is austin goolsby dissent for no increase as he said he might he's looking at the data like a hawk and and the data is is interestingly mixed um some weakness to be sure Uh, But let me tell you what, one thing that caught my eye and I look at that uh, initial jobless claims and it had been moving up, but then it moved down last week. Now, that is a, you know, that is a volatile indicator, but um, did not uh, confirm that upward move. And, uh, you know, that is a a current weekly indicator for the week of April, uh, April 22nd. I was also, by the way, very surprised. Uh, to see uh the shore housing market um increase i mean it was a tiny increase essentially a zero but uh you know it had been falling for seven or eight consecutive uh, months, and the expectation was it would continue to fall by the way all the f a uh f h f a index which comes out simultaneously with this case shower also showed a, a rise um that's more volatile and uh, I had shown some rise before um it are our, our home prices finally stabilizing. They've only down five percent from their peak year over year. The case show is basically now zero um, again, way above what the BLS uh, indicators are, which, of course, we've discussed are, are very, very lagged. Uh, GDP, of course, was weak, but but mostly because of uh, inventory drawdown, which is not a negative factor going forward. Um, it does also mean, however, that productivity, again, looks pretty bad in the first quarter. I mean, 1.1% annualized increase, uh, given how much did we have, uh, 800,000 workers in that first quarter. Um, I mean, we're going to get that data next week. But again, I mean, this is a seam how bad productivity uh, has actually been. I mean, we got the uh, the the, um, the core PCE and all that it was basically on target it gives enough ammunition for the hawks if they want to be, to continue to be on um the earnings let's go back on the earnings the earnings were pretty good i think the, the beat rate is actually slightly above uh average and um um until amazon came on the call to say that they saw a slowdown uh in uh, you know their uh, aws services in, in the month of march we. We really weren't getting a lot of negative um, revisions uh, for years. In fact, we got some positive revisions on on the year uh, going forward. A lot lot less talk about um, uh, inflation and supply side as things uh, basically normalize there. Um, I even heard a report that eggs are down to a dollar a dozen after the avian flu drove them up to 5 dollars a dozen i mean a lot of those rates are down oil is below 80 despite the opec uh, cuts um you know the fed really again should should cut uh, uh but they but they won't by the way we did get the money supply also on tuesday and that showed a pretty big drop not surprising we we know deposits have uh, left the bank um now, if they went to money market mutual funds, they're still in M2, but some of them are going into ETFs um, uh, that promise money market type returns, and and so they are not yet counted. Um, uh, maybe they should be eventually, but um, uh, it, it, the money supply M2 money supply is still uh, declining, and uh, now now we got uh, you know a year of decline uh, under our belt. So um, uh, no falling apart. Yet I, I still think for a, a solid pause, what's going to be important. I mentioned Goolsbee, but the second part of it is uh, is going to be this statement: a pause. I we, we will what, the, what we will likely pause to see the cumulative effects of policy is what would really stimulate the market. If they say that you know we're you know that um, we're watching it, but don't give a pause. A uh, real message um, uh, that m- might discourage the market uh, going uh, forward in terms of what the Fed will do. The Fed is going to see a few more indicators. Um, nothing that I think is going to move uh, the needle a lot. They will see ISM, which is uh, uh, which is a very timely indicator. Um, we've gotten some pretty bad manufacturing local indicators. Um, but S&P Global is high. And of course, the hawks the can point to that jump of one year inflationary expectations, which was confirmed again in, in today's final numbers um, uh, by the University of Michigan uh, as, as something they're watching. But the market based indicators of inflationary expectations are are not up.
1: We've got another bank under stress. First Republic is down to like down to three, four dollars after another huge, huge collapse. It seems like that one is in trouble, but the markets are holding in despite these fears. They feel like the Fed's yeah. got the banking system under control. Because,
2: uh, this is this is not viewed as systemic. I mean, um, I, deposits are safe. I mean, it's not. Oh my God, it's not a domino. I know there's some people think there, but it's it. it, it, it I mean, there were some comparisons made, or or on CNBC about is this like 2008? Absolutely not. I mean, look at the big banks; don't have you know any any problem whatsoever. Um, we talked about the fact that uh, last week, and I'll stress it again that um, to the extent that its small medium banks lending is curtailed, that's going to slow um, a lot of small firms. Um, May, a lot of which are not really in the market, um, you know, a lending, pa uh, lending, big firms uh, have financing and there's no problem. So, you know, we, we may not see earnings really dip, even though we, we see GDP stall out um, uh, in uh, the second, uh, second half of uh, uh, the year. Of course, also next week when we report, we will know the Fed, of course, uh, but we'll also know employment um in april which i'm watching very very closely first full month after S- SVB, the fed will not have employment they will not have it by wednesday um it be, it be it, it's available thursday evening to a select group um i i do not believe that uh, they can even get fragmentary but i'm not certain on that um, but that should be very very interesting and of course initial jobless claims will come out thursday the day after the fed meeting to see whether that uh Reverses uh, also. So yeah, I mean, with Amazon, we've seen some people say they've seen some slowdown. Um, and clearly, uh, again, the hawks can point to stickiness in the PCE and and the GDP deflator. Again, that's all past and lagged, and and not what I call uh, current at at uh, at this time. Um, so uh, you know, basically, earnings. Are looking. Good. What we, I think what's encouraged people was that earnings were really uh, beating estimates at, at or uh, above uh, long term, and with not a lot of uh, downward revisions of year and some upward revisions of, of, of year total earnings, encouraged uh, the market. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm 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 seeing that. Could it could it challenge its sort of highs uh, <laughs> that it reached? It uh it might depending on uh you know maybe the the fed- uh uh language um you know if they put a wait and see type of an indicator they'll never commit but um if they put something that hints of that uh i think um we may we- may see the market push upward higher it's it's a sign the fed finally gets it but um um we'll 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 see uh we'll see on wednesday
1: any, any final? Just, while, just one final thing on the Fed. Any any comments on? Did, I, I'm sure you saw some of the spoofs of, of Powell this week on on the videos from the the Russian pranksters pretending to be Zelensky. Did you did you see that? Or any comments on that?
2: No, I actually did not <laughs> did not see that.
1: Oh. Um, okay, there's some videos going around what, of Powell. The
2: gist of that? That Powell is. Uh...
1: He he was commenting, or uh, you don't know if it's an AI fake or or he actually was commenting. But there's like a video of Powell commenting to Zelensky about uh, their expectations. It's an interesting it's an okay. interesting video. I'll send it to you later.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, no, that that would be fun fun to see. Of course, uh, <laughs> we got to always ask: Are these things real or not? Uh, in terms of uh, what what happened? I mean, the Fed is, uh, you know, I mean. I I think they're set for 25, but there's going to be the twist of language. I I mean, I want to see Goolsby dissent because there has not been a dissent for a year and a half, nearly. And uh, during a period of time when I think there was a lot of reasons to uh, to be one way or the other. And um, I I just want the Fed to have a richer uh, non non group think orientation to its policy planning. We'll see whether Austin uh, he said he's looking at it as a hawk that the what's come through so far, I think he's still, probably still on the fence. So uh, he could be. Uh, Powell likes to change the language to get everyone unanimous. I mean, he's succeeded in a year and a half. We'll see whether he can get that uh, for Goolsby.
1: Well, well, on that note, Professor, thank you. Looking forward to the commentary next week. Have a great, uh, great weekend. Thank you. I'm going to turn the conversation over to Dave Goodson, who is uh, the head of securitized at Voya Investment Management. We, it was in work closely with Dave and his team for sub advising a number of our ETFs and including a, a fund focus on securitized assets. Dave, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. Pleasure to be with you. I look forward to this.
1: We had uh, some fireworks. You're reminding me our last time you were on was with Professor Siegel and Don Cohn kicking us off in an epic, epic battle on on what the Fed and inflation was going to do. I got to – you probably if – if we call back, I think we got to give that one to Siegel.
0: I think Siegel took that one. Agreed. <laughs> yes, that's right. He was overwhelming, uh, Mr. Cohn. I think that's the way he did it. That was his technique. but cause both had great points.
1: Um. So, give us your view. So, tell us, as, as and, and I don't know if you if you want to start with anything you heard from from CEO kicks off, but as you look at the environment for fixed income, um, we we'll get your views across across exposures. But give us your sort of top down. How you are thinking about the fixed income market opportunities? Just high level to, to kick us off.
0: Sure, it is. I'll tell you, with all of the day to day impacts that, especially since the failures of SVB and Signature Bank about a month, a month and a half ago now it's hard to ignore those very dramatic uh, impacts. When, when you're asked for a nice top-down, neat top-down view, <clears throat> they get challenged every day, Jeremy. But with that being said, um, you do have to keep your head as a portfolio manager, of course, and I harken I, 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 I back to when I formulated our, our kind of our themes and our outlook uh, for 2023, and it was actually fairly positive. As nasty as 2022 was, for all market participants, at least those that were long risk, uh, whether you were long equity risk or credit risk or just pure rate risk, you suffered in 2022. And uh, I think if if, if nothing else would inform my more positive outlook going into the 2023 was that at some point things have to get better. Things have to mean revert. We're in a progressive economy that. You know it was driven by a still entrepreneurial spirit and smart thinkers, people who take intelligent risks, and things will get better. My, and I, I like to think you know our approach included. So we saw some very attractively priced risks coming into the year. Uh, uh, some of which were more bottom up in nature, but there were enough of them that I felt you know fairly constructive when I started to think about things top down, and uh, and it made me more positive overall. Uh, Sometimes that's the way it works, you know, it's the summation of some bottom-up observations make you feel more positive overall, even if they're rooted in more micro-observations. So we felt pretty good about things, um, I think, going into the year. And and generally speaking, despite those dramatic challenges we've faced day-to-day since mid-March, I I think those tenets, generally speaking, still hold. Uh, There's been a particular challenge. We can get into whatever specifics you want to, of course. Um, and this time we've got together. Uh, there's been some challenges to parts of our world that that I could speak out or speak about in a more broad economic context, like commercial real estate, my extension CMBS. But generally speaking, again, those positive tenants we like, Jeremy to start the year hold, and maybe even came into better focus when I think about something like housing market that Professor Siegel addressed as well. So I'm definitely a pause there. See if there's anything you want me to specifically, yeah, follow up on
1: well we'll definitely get into the commercial real estate but let, let's keep high level macro for two for, for a few seconds um, so last year was sure, definitely yeah. the decline of the 6040 you know it, the people were talking about the 6040 being dead and income was so low you didn't you didn't have bonds providing the cushion at mm-hmm. levels where we are today is the 6040 back from the dead alive and well the income <laughs> it could become a positive hedge asset again to stocks what do you think
0: i think it's- I do. I know there's challenges to that, and there's some great thinkers that have posited uh, that, that it's it's not back. And in fact, you need to think permanently about a different approach to your high-level portfolios, including a permanent allocation to private, uh, private placement-type uh, 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 market exposures. Um, to some degree, I think that's an impure recommendation. Uh, but uh, overall, I, I, I think Yes, 60/40 is back. Given where uh, all that pain from last year, as we have kind of started with, it's it's put us in a new world, and that new world has rates in a different uh, uh, place, i.e., much higher, and it's easier to be constructive. Even if you don't, your expectation isn't that isn't for rates to come materially lower over in the near term or over the course of the year, they're at least at a level that can provide meaningful amounts of income in your portfolio. And that was not the case coming out of 2021 when the 60-40 uh, model got significantly challenged. So almost empirically based, I, I have to say, Jeremy, I think it's back. And I think it's in a good place. Another prism we will challenge that notion from is just what's that correlation between equities and fixed income. And for the longest time, the two uh, markets – at the highest level, they were not exhibiting traditional correlations. they were moving together, and last year was of course down <laughs> in, in uh, on each front and I think those the traditional correlations have have come back for periods of time it's It's not a definitive move uh, we've seen various regimes just on a that will exist on a day to day week to week basis if, if I know it's a complicated notion you know. Thinking about correlations and how markets, equities, and fixed income move and can change. Those regimes can change, but if you do think about things from that point of view, there's some pretty fascinating changes that we've seen occur over the course of the year, where those correlations have gone become negative at times. That's the traditional one, and then for periods of time they'll be they'll be correlated again and they'll move together. And it seems to be a function of what's that dramatic effect, dramatic impact in the market on a, a sometimes day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, how much uh, inflation is going to, you know, sc- scream rates higher and uh, are rising rates causing the yep. equity sell off? I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of last year was discount rate adjustments and higher rates hurting the most expensive stocks. Now, it, at higher levels, it's a little, it's, it hopefully it starts to become a little bit different story over time. And we, and we do view right. longer term the real rates should go back down. Um, so seagull's has become more of a bond bull for the short run, uh, for sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that, that. It's um, it's interesting to see there. Let, let me th- coming back to the Fed. A lot of people talk about the rate hike element of the Fed. And again, as we get our hike rates, and then and maybe they pause maybe but not. But I, I, I'm i curious on your take, particularly since you focus on these securitized markets and and the mortgage markets a bit. You know, they, less talked is, is about their quantitative tightening program and how they roll off their balance sheet. Um, maybe you could yeah. give a few comments about how you see that going. Um, that there, there was one of my friends, Warren Pies from 314 research has commented on the, how they think about reverse repo as part of the, the program, and if and essentially, you know, money market funds use reverse repo as a way, and the Fed is is sort of supporting that market in some ways. And is that reserves in the way that bank they, they traditionally thought of reserves? And so, what how much quantitative tightening could they actually do, you know, and how far will go? These are all interesting questions. I'm curious on your take on a what you see for quantitative tightening and the Fed's program for. Reducing their balance sheet and these types of reserves in the system. What, what's your sense of what's happening there? How's it impacting your market?
0: So, you know, First thing is it's it's happening. Uh, we're seeing quantitative tightening in earnest So if there's any question I know it's it's probably hard for the average um, kind of person doing more than about living their life during their day-to-day jobs to, to, to Know that what that flow is, but those flows are there. Uh, they're real and you're, I'm glad you asked me that because it's, it, is, it does seem to be overlooked. I would say even in our own asset allocation meetings internally, quantitative tightening, which is, again is real and there's real flow there and there's real implications, um, it's often a topic that you, know, you, you wait to get to. It's, you know, you, we're, we're, we're addressing a number of things before that, but it is very real. Uh, and every week we are see getting updates on what the, what the Fed's uh, balance sheet looks like and, and how that's changed. And there's, we have great insight, we think, into judging just how much of their exposures that they amassed uh, coming out of COVID, how much actually is going to uh, be paid down and effectively contribute to some of this quantitative tightening. Because a big portion of what they own is agency MBS, uh, particularly on the residential mortgage front. So in this slow prepay environment, I think it's a bit of a blessing that we're not seeing as much of those paydowns come through. So not as much cash is actually being kind of pulled from the system and contributing to quantitative tightening at a time when you know, liquidity is a little stretched. It's a little bit strained in our markets. But it is happening nonetheless. Treasury maturities absolutely continue to to come through for the time being. Uh, and And we're seeing their balance sheets come down. And I think that does tie with uh, your point in reference to uh, reverse repurchase program, and how sizable that remains uh, as a, a, a capital real capital market that's that's out there. That's less tied to our markets on the securitized side. and I think you know it doesn't tie directly to mortgage rates, uh, whether on the commercial side or the residential side. but it is a another piece of the mosaic that absolutely kind of informs our View on you know what is the capital uh, that's available out there to potentially come in and 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 impact flows within our markets more directly at some point in time.
1: And, and I think, help? And I think some commentary from the Fed is is that the banks you know they can you know this idea of uh, if the banks have to. You know, as, as the as the Fed's reducing their balance sheet, and and essentially the banks have to adjust. You know, if they if they really want more reserves, they have to compete with that reverse repo for money market funds. You know, so if they want more deposits, they right. got to compete, and that's part of the Fed policy. Is you've got if you you know they don't have sympathy for these banks, is that they've got to compete wow. for the money market funds, and that's what's creating some of the stress um, on the banking system. Amen. I think
0: that's exactly right, and this this stress. Um, and we alluded to this before, I think you even mentioned specifically the new actor on the stage in the banking crisis, First Republic. Now, I think a symptom of uh, not only the past prior to failures, but potentially this new looming one will be more regulation on the banks to to sort of compound this competition for capital and deposits. Uh, um, new regulation, I think, will be another piece of the banking puzzle that looms, and I don't like the sound of it, (laughs) frankly.
1: All right. So in terms of how you you talked about the the, the lack of repayments of the mortgage securities on on the fed is maybe like extending the duration and they're not actively selling they're just letting these things mature and expire is that the is that the the sense that because its the sure. maturities are extended their their portfolio duration you'd say is extending and so there's less pressure are are you surprised at all through the quantitative tightening and reducing the balance sheet that the that the curve is so inverted i mean that you could say <laughs> Why is the ten year at three fifty when the Fed funds are five and the Fed is actively reducing their balance sheet? Yeah.
0: I to me though, I think I can, the way I reconcile that, Jeremy, it's probably pretty simplistic. Uh so um don't make fun of me for being too simple here. But it's simply that the Fed has been so resolute with their path of rate hikes and you know, if they're going to keep Fed funds uh at I guess next week we'll see at uh, 5%, um, uh, perhaps you know north of that, then the, the curve's going to stay anchored to that until they get a potential signal. Professor Siegel, like, alluded to, maybe we get to hint at a pause, which will be positive. But until then, I think having that front end more anchored uh, at the high, these relatively high levels versus the rest of the curve, and, I, and therefore the curve stays inverted, it's it's really a function, quite simply, of that. I think that what's what's uh, better priced for the factors that we've kind of been through some of the pain, some of the competition for capital that's out there is the best. Is the rest of the curve? That's probably more reflective of the reality that our economy is going to face here, um, at least for the next few years, during which we have some better visibility, um, longer term growth. Uh, I think is more of a question, and maybe you could see a more volatility in the back end you know, as we progress through the year. But for now, I think it's just that 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 inversion is is really a function of the Fed's um, you know stated intentions. Uh, that's what's driving it, Jeremy. So I don't I don't see this as a surprise. It, it, that ties neatly. To me challenge me, please enlighten me if there's something else that um, you see potentially a play or maybe I'm missing. But that's I think I can boil it down that simply.
1: So the market is the market is right. There's sort of a a slowdown coming. Is is was that what the ten year is telling you? Because of how inverted the curve is, how deep is this slowdown going to become? Yeah,
0: I, I would look to maybe not the ten year as a reflection of of how deep the slowdown in the next year to two years is going to be. I'd probably look more to the belly of the curve personally to see what the market's thinking in in that respect. The longer end. It can be pulled around and from from so many different factors, some of which could just be simply technical in nature. As I'm sure you appreciate, but more that belly, that kind of three to seven year part of the curve is where I look to more directions to you know what could this slowdown be, and that doesn't concern me actually from a growth perspective as a as a as a signal. And yet at this point, um, I, in the curve has been volatile so you kind of have to check it as you speak but i would say you know that part of the curve doesn't make me it doesn't it doesn't flash recession uh in and of itself in in my estimation the just to the fact we're inverted does given where those levels are i don't connect that to recession does that does that makes sense it, it connects
1: you to the fed fighting inflation and being stubborn and bringing these high rates above but yes. then the the shape of the 3 to 7 doesn't tell you recession is is uh is what that's you're saying right. that's right
0: that that that's right and and i think the fed has to stay vigilant has to stay Has to keep stay committed to the course to help keep inf- inflation lower via managing consumers expectations uh and and um and market expectations to a degree um, but I think there's also this reality the market sees inflation is coming lower. It has been lower. Professor Siegel has been on that camp for a while now, right? So um, I think we see it as a market, and that also informs the view of the curve being lower too. Yeah.
1: Well, I wanted to start out pretty macro, and then the second half of the conversation will go deeper into the asset classes where you find the most opportunities. But any, if, if, if we, as we wrap up the first segment, any closing thoughts on the macro or where rates are that you want to communicate to to our listeners?
0: The piece of the macro that I'm I think is 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 probably less or the least well priced into rate structure is this credit creation uh, uh, dynamic that I think is really unfolding now as we speak on the, in, in the wake of the bank failures and we've already talked we've already alluded to this in the conversation. So as more regulation potentially comes on the scene, yet more regulation I should say for bankers to have to weave into their business models. It may not even be the actual rules that ultimately get handed down when and if they come through. And I think it's not a a matter of if, it's when. Um, I think until that happens, you're still going to be a weaker lending impulse from banks. Uh, And that, I think, is going to have real economic impact. We see it in in our markets directly, in some cases, in the case of residential mortgage lending, commercial real estate lending, even auto lending, uh, so parts of the consumer and their ability to make durable goods purchases, I think will be will be impacted negatively uh, from this credit impulse. That's the other, I think that's the macro piece that concerns me the most, is I, I try and keep this positive outlook. We talk, you started asking me top-down about opportunities in the market coming into the year. That might be the biggest challenge to my outlook into the near and medium term is how does that credit creation impulse, how, how muted does it become and what, what will be the impacts be on, on credit quality? That's probably the biggest piece on the macro that I don't necessarily see reflected particularly well, rate structure or certainly in equity
1: values. Talk a little bit more about what are the opportunities coming uh, and and some of the bank issues uh, are creating some opportunities, I think, for Dave. But let, let's start with the asset that's on everybody's mind, their home. You know, We are working from home more, um, and we had this nice opportunity of depressed mortgage rates to refinance, and now these mortgage rates are going much higher. Um, but what does that mean for your market, what you're investing in? What do you see as the mortgage-backed security market, the opportunities, risks? Give us the, the current state.
0: Sure, absolutely. And this is a good one. This is a great place to start. This is a market we're very opportun- we're very confident on, I would say, it's maybe the best word to use at the moment, that it's going to perform for us in our portfolios. And it's going to do so across a really wide range of scenarios. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, we've talked about in, in the first segment about some of the potential sources of strain on the economy and how that could break. We've talked about the Fed and you know, when are they going to be done? There's just a number of different uh, sources of potential market moving impacts that are out there, and there always are. Um, but as it relates to taking risk within residential mortgage credit, we feel that can provide performance and deliver the cash flows that we analyze uh, with a fair degree of confidence across a wide range of scenarios. And that's the name of the game uh, as a portfolio manager. You look for those type situations. We think. Residential mortgage credit presents that right now. And the key drivers, I would say, uh, are twofold. You alluded to one of them, um, which is the mortgage rate backdrop, which is extremely elevated. And what that has had the impact uh, to do is slow the prepayment impulse within that market. So 2021, if you can, our listeners can think back to what it was like back then, rates were very depressed. That was the great opportunity, as you put it, to to, to either refinance a mortgage or if you were a purchaser of a new home, lock in a very low rate. So prepayment speeds in our market were very, very high. Uh, we saw all-time highs of, of prepayment speeds, and the durations of our, of our investments we make in that space got very, very short. 2022 whipsawed that as mortgage rates repriced higher and higher. We set uh, an all-time high for the average 30-year mortgage rate in the U.S. in October, North of 7%, more than double where it was for almost all of 21 and the beginning part of 22. So, a lot of volatility, a lot of steepness of that increase. And what that had the impact of doing was whipsaw that refi uh, impulse back to no refinances and prepayment speeds just absolutely dropped and dropped significantly. And that caused the price impact on our bonds in the residential mortgage credit part of the market to be very negative and, and bonds repriced significantly lower over the course of 22. So where does that leave us? In 23, we're in a world where I think it's undeniable while there is some uncertainty about it. If, does the Fed do one more hike, two more hikes potentially? I don't think there's there, there's too much more ahead of that. I don't, I don't think that's very uh, arguable at this point. So you could argue we're at the close to the end of the rate hiking regime. And when that's the case, typically the impulse mortgage rates is for uh, for rates to move lower and so coming from a place where bond valuations are lower you've repriced your portfolio to expecting very low prepayment speeds from this point forward we're comfortable earning a significant amount of income and yield off of those depressed prices and those those very conservative cash flow assumptions to a world where we have a lot of upside potential sources of upside uh, with rates being one of them, so I said it was twofold. That's one of them, rates. The other one is other one is home prices, and, and I was delighted to hear Professor Siegel highlight, amongst all the other things that are going on out there, that we actually saw home prices tick higher uh, using the Case-Shiller or the FHFA's index, um, you know, through with the uh, with the February data. I don't think we're necessarily done with home price declines nationwide basis on a nationwide basis, but we at least have stabilized. <clears throat> so while it encourage their listeners to differentiate a little bit mortgage credit versus home prices the two are definitely intertwined and we think that the, there's other additional upside in investing mortgage credit from the market for home prices and housing in particular having turned a corner
1: and in the, in the when you compare the spread off of the standard mortgage you know people one of my colleagues puts a lot of charts on the on the spread of this traditional thirty-year mortgage versus the ten-year bond, and it's often priced off the ten-year bond. Um, and that spread is sort of a high; like it's in the th- it's over th- it's over three. Yeah. Historically, it was much lower. And is is that just this inverted yield curve in the mortgage market not buying some of that? I mean, it, it, can you talk through the dynamics of that? What factors in your mind are impacting the spread of the mortgage rates over that? Uh, and again, is that creating the opportunities for you to buy these elevated elevated spreads?
0: Yeah, it plays a part. It plays a part. I'm glad you pointed that out as well. So right now, that spread you allude to between primary mortgage rates and the 10-year, which they're often priced off of, is actually right at 3%. I'm just looking at uh, a current feed I've got in front of me. Um, and that's close to the all- all-time highs. Yes. And I would say the biggest impact of why that's remained so elevated uh, even today, uh, despite us being, as I articulated before, potentially close to the end of the Fed's rate hike regime, is all the volatility in rate markets catalyzed most recently by the bank failures. Uh, if you recall, and the listeners might recall if they watched fixed income markets fairly closely, the two-year Treasury, typically not a place for a lot of volatility, was, was at the epicenter of, of of markets that showed volatility. So that will impact the level at which banks are willing to make lending decisions even in housing markets uh, they'll take they look at they consider that that volatility so it, until we get more resolution further away frankly from those bank failures which doesn't seem to be likely uh, given today's most recent developments and developments this week that relates to frc um i think that 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 will likely remain a little bit elevated, and, but as that comes down, that probably feeds into opportunity yep. for, for better total returns within residential mortgage credit, which is already priced for a market like this, uh, as I've articulated. So not more downside from this dynamic, but potential upside if, if and as that, that the markets heal and volatility comes lower and, and that spread can shrink.
1: How much of mortgages are held by banks and so that their profitability concerns matter and how much is securitized for people like you to buy?
0: So the overall amount of uh, mortgage debt that's out there is measured in trillions, as listeners may be aware. Uh, I think we're approximately 12 trillion or so in total uh, mortgage um, debt that's out there. Approximately nine of that is held in securitized form, the vast majority of which is done uh, through the agency RMBS markets. Um, just to give you a sense, so um, it's it is significant what's out there now in terms of the banks' profitability and lending impulses. They can uh, they can uh, essentially own uh, mortgage risk via the securitized markets, they can, and, they can and, and have traditionally been meaningful investors on the securitized side of the shop. They have not been uh, much in the last, call, year and a half, uh, as much of a market participant in the securitized side. They've definitely been uh, less of a player there. But on the lending side, uh, they can own, also own uh, these mortgages that they can create, of course, in whole, we call it whole loan form. There they've been a better, more active participant until very recently, um, uh, where we've we've sensed more of that supply, that whole loan supply of just mortgages, raw mortgages, getting funded in the broader whole loan markets. Mm. So we think away from banks. So it's kind of an interesting. I'm glad you asked. this it's an interesting flow that's that's fairly fresh.
1: And it's also what got Silicon Valley Bank into trouble too. Like they were buying a bunch of these agency mortgages and held them on their balance sheet. They bought them at the low yields and got wiped out a bit when when rachel rose um that's right what talk about so the fdic took them over um and and is starting to sell some of those things you mentioned like what what is the opportunity there for you how is that going is that something that you're starting to, to look at as uh something that that you you want to add to your portfolios
0: Yes, so indeed, they seized uh, the the asset securities included uh, of both Signature Valley Bank or Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, excuse me. Um, And uh, the total amount of securities uh, that went along with those uh, those seizures totaled uh, approximately ninety billion. Uh, So, not an insignificant amount, uh, especially if you consider the market backdrop, which earlier on in the. In, in in our session here, I described as less liquid, you know, less well supported by traditional real money flows. Uh, so ninety billion into a market that's 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 again less liquid. It's it has the potential to drive some volatility. Um, the assets themselves are again, as I mentioned, almost all agency related. There's small fringes of the portfolio that do have some credit risk. In fact, those have already all been sold. Um, and they were actually very well received in in, in the market. However, you still have, we have approximately $90 billion still left to go, uh, and that's all going to be on the agency side. But it is also, again, as I find, probably remind listeners, agency risk it doesn't come with credit risk. The, the The principal and interest are both guaranteed, maybe not on a timely basis, but are are guaranteed uh, by the GSEs, which have the implicit government support. Uh, of the United States. So um, they don't come with credit risk. They're considered high-quality investments from that standpoint. And therefore, at some level, have a place in our portfolio. And That, at some level, is the key piece here. Um, So as these lists continue to come, be delivered in the market in varying size, at what point will these lists become less well-supported, unlike what we've seen so far, which the lists have been very well-supported, good things become, as we say, sloppy in the market? And, and could, could there be opportunity to add high-quality bonds to your portfolio at levels that are in excess of their of their risk? And that's what I think will materialize over time. That's $90 billion, It's not going to be sold at once. It's going to take a significant amount of time for them to clear it. Um, BlackRock is the is the entity that was tasked by the FDIC to manage the sales. I think they're going to do a great job with it. Um, but they're going to be subject with Confronting things that are beyond their control, like market fatigue, and potentially have to sell bonds into markets that are even less liquid, perhaps than I characterize them as, as they are today. And there's where I think there could be opportunity to, to put into uh, uh, into our portfolios. Yeah,
1: all sorts of questions that could come from BlackRock being involved in that. But that's a that's a whole topic of another podcast. <laughs> um, let's let, let's go back to um, the the other part of the the. Real estate market that's generating a lot of buzz, and the banks is commercial real estate, and some of the commercial mortgage-backed securities. Maybe in your market, where you're looking at the securitized opportunities, what do you see there? What do you see for the banks? Any comments on the spreads? Is that something you're avoiding? Is that something you're you're adding to? What what do you see as the opportunity or risk?
0: Yeah, that is. I'd say that is the and within the Boya franchise. If I were to kind of categorize all the questions we get from our uh, from our client base ninety percent start with commercial real estate uh, related questions the good news is Jeremy I would say there's been so much negativity uh, I'd say within the news cycle um, as you know that we've we've been to really since probably since the beginning of the year so even without the bank failures I think we've I would characterize the news flow around commercial real estate as negative uh, it's just been punctuated by the by by the banks and the potential credit conditions that uh, will likely govern the space for some time, and because of all that negativity, a lot of the questions we get actually come from more of a hey, where's the opportunity? You're almost the way you asked it. Um, it's it can't all be this bad, can it? Has <laughs> uh, almost been the the uh, the take from our client base, and and so I sent some. Um, uh, we'll ultimately get some constructive sources of capital here that, that will look to be deployed within to within commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is certainly not going away as a, uh, a part of our economy. Um, and if you were to really deconstruct uh, what's behind the issues in commercial real estate, and you go down to the property type level, which I think is probably the key dimension right now, to talk about commercial real estate, it's not location, location, location like it usually is. It's really property type. And, of course, I think I would have to acknowledge, and everybody would be aware, one of the key property types being offices is absolutely facing a very big secular challenge, the post-COVID world of work from home. We just don't need as much office space and don't use it as frequently as we did pre-COVID. And there's different barometers for quantifying that, but as a general statement, I think that's the case. And so office is going to have to get rationalized for a world where we just need less of it. And so that's very real that's out there. That will have some result in some pockets of the commercial real estate universe uh being deleveraged and deleveraged with fair amounts of severity. But when you take a step back from that and stay with that property type dimension, think about the other parts of commercial real estate uh to the extent folks are renters and they live in a multifamily building. there's probably pretty good demand and tightness I would imagine in their in their in their buildings they would observe. Uh, And that's reflected with relatively high rents and uh, very good outcomes for folks who lend on those properties or own those properties, generally speaking. Um, Another part of the commercial real estate universe that I like would be the retail universe, which is not uh, the best name, given the transition away from traditional brick and and mortar to more kind of delivery from the Amazons of the world to your homes. But it absolutely went through a credit cycle post-COVID and has come out with flying colors, I would say. So retail is another place that we see very positive signals from. Of course, real estate and the industrial part of the economy, sort of the flip side of traditional retail. Think about you know, getting that last mile of delivery of goods to your home. How does that happen? It has to be warehouse space that, that that can that can house those goods, and that's done extraordinarily well. And then the last piece, everybody's liking to travel. I've got my summer trip planned up here for Memorial Day week, um, being out here here out of Atlanta. The travel's done very well. By extension, the hotel part of the commercial real estate universe has also done very well. So I spent a little bit of time you know, chronicling the issues with office, of course, which is valid and, and uh, uh, we have to do that. But away from that, the opportunity, commercial real estate is, is very much still there uh, in other property types here and now. So I, that's the way I start by talking about uh, our views on commercial real estate, Jeremy, on balance positive.
1: On bonds positive, it's interesting. You and I both are are filming or recording this. Both looks like we're work we're work from home environments. Um, I my travel. I was trying to his work from home. I was enjoying not traveling. I am back on the road. I'll tell you. I am I am traveling all over. Um, and so I could I can support both those anecdotes. Um, in terms of the you know the consumer side also so spending um you know people i've started talking about the auto loan market that's one of those asset backed markets you've talked about what what's what do you see do you see anything in the auto market is that a risk um do you find the yields there interesting what what's happening
0: i hate to say this as uh, kind of a you know, a lead but i feel uncertainty uh there jeremy I, i'm not know um, too bashful about saying that there's sometimes that you just get a lot of mixed signals uh, in a particular market and it it sometimes that those mixed signals i think ultimately means there's money to be made there uh, but you maybe you don't want to take a lot of risk until you 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 get better certainty and I think that's where where we're at uh, as as far as the auto cycle goes um, a lot of conflicting signals is bottom line what we're seeing we've got some good colleagues on the desk that that cover some of the corporate entities that participate in the space and I'll tell you it's a story of haves and have nots. Um you know, a lot of I'd characterize generally speaking, uh domestic manufacturers is more on the have not side. Mm. And uh, the foreign ones is, is benefiting, yes, from more of the the trends uh, within the consumer base and preferences there. Um I would characterize some of the dealers uh as they have not within the auto marketplace, struggling with balancing some of those inventory issues and juggling. Is that a delinquencies? Bit in the
1: liquid of when, when you say you have knocks, is that because people are starting to default on their loans, and you see more risk of that?
0: I see that, yes, but that was I was almost a separate dimension. What I was looking to do before is just simply supply, which has been such an issue in autos, right? And then having adequate supply was such a crippler for parts of the market and, uh, in in twenty two, and now we're balancing that out, but we see problems amassing from too much supply
2: hmm. in
0: some instances, and and, and weaker sales. And that's where I was characterizing the have nots is having the weaker sales with the domestic manufacturers and stronger sales, less supply, tighter, better margin impact from the uh from the foreign manufacturers. But uh, let's let's definitely talk about the delinquency piece because that's more part and parcel of the risks that we take. And what we're seeing there is also a story of haves and have nots. So within the consumer base, uh whether you like it or you don't, you have to stack up uh, income quartiles when you take your risk and, and, and determine where you want to take risk in our universe. And oftentimes, the lower income quartiles are a good place to take risk. They, uh, generally speaking, they consume, and the and the turnover rate of your uh, of your loan obligations can be a lot faster uh, for parts of the of that part of the consumer base. Again, they're lower income, but that's not where we're at now. Uh, in, in, in our cycle, uh, as I mentioned before in the context of mortgage credit we're seeing much slower repayment rates and very little refi impulse. The same thing is, generally speaking true for other forms of consumer debt. Once you go up the income cohort status that 's where we see more stability uh, in our in our in our payment rates and less delinquency we're starting to see delinquency problems in those lower income quartiles Jeremy, and that's what we're in our strategies attempting to position more defensively for this continued strain on that part of our consumer base.
1: I mean, we've talked about a lot of the micro areas you might focus on, and we have a few final few minutes. As, as you think about the overall spread, if you try to give a big comeback to, we, we did, we started macro and micro. Let's go back macro for a second. Concluding thought. As you think sure. about the overall asset backed securities market, the spread levels, I'm looking at one summary number. I see, you know, yield slightly below 5%. So maybe this is like a little bit below 150, 140 base points above the 10 year. Around sixth duration on, on one of the strategies I'm looking at. Is that s- symbolic of the opportunity? What do you see as the spreads? Are they normal, high, low? What 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 do you think?
0: They're cheap, Jeremy, across the board. We come off of the off of the very difficult 2022, came into twenty three looking extremely cheap on a historical basis, on a risk adjusted basis, pretty much any prism through which I would judge richness or cheapness of of spreads and income potential, we screened on the cheaper side. In some cases, historically so, and it is this. The events of this year, March especially, has not done much to correct that cheapness. So it's, that cheapness still absolutely exists. The, the reference, the frame reference you were giving, uh, likely included a high degree of agency risk, which inherently is going to have much tighter spread implications mm-hmm. in the in along the lines of that 150. More broadly, within securitized credit, residential mortgage credit. Uh, parts of the intelligently selected CNBS universe, we talked about some of our property type preferences, parts of the of the prime consumer base, all of those I put spreads well north of two hundred. And for this is for solidly investment grade risk with relatively short spread duration. so you're we we will realize these cash flows in a relatively short window inside of five years to earn these elevated spreads. Risk adjusted, I think that's one of the best values I see across fixed income markets right now.
1: Well, on that very positive note, um, we are going to wrap. Uh, so we've been talking with Dave Goodson, who's the head of Securitize at Void Investment Management. It's been a fun conversation. You go deep in all these exotic areas of the fixed income market. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our sound engineer Chris Hooks on the soundboard. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.